I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Leah Stokes is the kind of person who seems like she just has more hours in the day than us mere mortals. She's an assistant professor studying climate politics at UC Santa Barbara. And last year, during the Democratic primary, she did the hard work of breaking down and laying out the various candidates' platforms. At the same time, she was finalizing a book called Short-Circuiting Policy, Teaching Classes and Planting Fruit Trees. I just can't even imagine how you have time for this. <laughs> I'm everywhere. It's, I'm annoying myself. I'm so overexposed. Um, I feel like when you take the climate crisis really seriously, which I do, you just feel this sense of urgency that every minute, every day, every month, every year counts. And so I just work very hard. And now Leah is one of the co-hosts of a new show called A Matter of Degrees, along with Catherine Wilkinson of Project Drawdown, an organization that quantifies the largest opportunities for reducing greenhouse gas emissions globally. An episode of theirs that we're going to share with you is a story that I had honestly considered pitching to my colleagues at Outside In. So when I heard this one, it was just too perfect. It was reported by Julian Brave Noise Cat. He wanted to focus in on the Navajo Nation and this story that he had heard about, which is the transition from coal to solar playing out on the Navajo Nation. And it ended up being almost like a little microcosm for uh, the story of energy transitions more broadly across the entire country. And I, I think it really conveys the complexity of... Gosh, who was it? Who, who the, the all politics is local guy? Tip O'Neill. It's Tip, Tip O'Neill. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but that when it comes to energy transition, it 
necessarily has to happen everywhere and therefore has to fit into all of these local contexts and every local context is meaningfully different. Um, and that I think is is sort of like a, a, you know, a broader lesson that comes from this really specific story. Um, and I just think it was conveyed really, really amazingly well in, in the reporting. Um, Sorry, I'm like gushing a little bit, but... <laughs> That's okay. Julian will be thrilled. <laughs> In November, Arizona Public Service voted to provide over $100 million to just transition funding for the Navajo Nation. But Julian decided to focus on how the Diné people are spending funding coming from the CARES Act. Julian really wanted to tell Wahala's story, and it was really important to him in the reporting to center the voices of indigenous people living in the Navajo Nation and have them tell their own story. And so, of course, there are broader things happening. There are very large-scale solar projects going up uh, through different organizations in the Navajo Nation. And as you mentioned, um, you know, there's other things going on with Arizona Public Service, the largest utility in the state. So it's a complex place like anywhere else, um, but it was really important that we kind of center this story on a few people uh, who really live there and are in the community. That's the episode that we're going to play for you in part right now. And if you're interested in the sordid, sordid history of how Arizona Public Service went from being notoriously opposed to solar power in 2016 to being the first Republican-controlled regulatory agency in the country to vote for a 100% carbon-free electricity policy, Leah tells me that'll be the subject of their next episode. Okay, here's a matter of degrees. There's a story among the Navajo people. It's about a girl, the daughter of first man and first woman, who grows up to be a revered goddess in a time when monsters stalk the earth. With a young man named Jonah A., the son, she gave birth to twin boys. Her name is Changing Woman, and she helped to guide them and, and raise them in a way that they were became warriors. But before they went to the sun, they had to go through so many challenges, but also to prove to the sun that they were the children of the sun. The woman speaking, that's Wahela Johns. She's a citizen of the Navajo Nation. She's also an advocate for climate justice and solar energy. The story she's telling, it's part of the Navajo's genesis. Yes, and then the sun gave them tools and weapons to come back to our home to to defeat the monsters and slay the monsters. And there's teachings where as the twins, the hero twins were slain, these monsters, some of them went back into the earth. At risk of giving too much away, it's also metaphor and allegory. And a lot of Teachings come from that. There's teachings there that say we're not supposed to dig in the earth. We're not supposed to extract anything from the earth. If we do that, it's going to harm us. They say the oil, the coal, all of these deposits of um, ore and minerals, we're not supposed to bother them and that um, they're supposed to be left alone. If we do, that's going to create the harm. Um, It's going to create all the monsters again. This is a matter of degrees. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And my name is Julian Brave Noisecat. And together, we're telling stories for the climate curious.
So today we have a special episode of this podcast. It is about the long and winding path towards an energy transition in an often overlooked place, the Navajo Nation, the largest Indian reservation in the United States. And we also have a special guest, a co-host on this episode, a journalist and a policy expert named Julian Brave Noisecat, and he's going to help guide us through this story. So Julian, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, hello, everyone. My name is Julian Noisecat. I'm a citizen of the Sequetmoch uh, Nation and a descendant of the Statliunk Nation. And I guess I'm also a, a policy expert, which which feels like someone just put a little a little pep in my step. Uh, I'm excited to... <laughs> you got promoted there, too. <laughs> <laughs> they mostly just call me a hack, usually. <laughs> Which is, uh, my my dad was a sports journalist, so I feel like hack is like actually a real term of praise and, and endearment. Well, whatever the term, we are excited to dive into this story with you, Julian. And would you just... Tell us, what is the story that you're going to bring to our listeners today? So the woman speaking was Wahela Johns. She's a citizen of the Navajo Nation, the executive director of Native Renewables, an organization that's bringing solar power to Navajo homes. And she's also a friend. And the story that she was telling was the story of Changing Woman, a goddess who brings life and transition to the Navajo people at the dawn of this world. And that felt like an appropriate place to start for a story about a woman, a nation, and an energy system in a period of immense change. The story begins in Black Mesa, Arizona. Black Mesa to us is regarded as a female mountain. You know, there's teachings about from elders that said, as long as we take care of her, she's going to take care of us and and be the provider for good rain, for good moisture, for... um, for a life, a good life to live. Can you explain to us a little bit about what life is like in in Black Mesa? Sure. It's beautiful. I love it. It's a high desert region. You know, where we live is about, I don't know, maybe 7,400 feet in elevation. All of our roads are mostly dirt. And we, we just to get home, it takes... You know, it's like traveling on an hour of dirt road just to get home. My grandmother also, you know, is a rancher. She's raised um, lots of sheep, lots of cattle and horses. And so that's, I think, the beauty of our people, especially in Black Mesa region, where many residents live in rural areas that uh, manage livestock and they manage you know, they're farmers and they, they take caretake of home. Wahala's mother is from Black Mesa too. Her father's from nearby, south of the Hopi Reservation, which is surrounded by the Navajo, kind of like Lesotho in South Africa, or as some Navajo like to joke, like a hole in a piece of Indian fry bread. But we'll get back to that in a bit. To this day, the Navajo Nation is a hard scrabble place. About a third of homes lack running water and a tenth don't have electricity. Wahela's work has brought her to homesteads across the reservation. There's an elder. He's probably like 70. And actually, I met him through a ceremony and he said, hey, you should come over to my house. And he doesn't have power. And so we get into his home and he's, um, you know, he has a generator that he uses to generate power for light at night. And he has like a VCR and a little television, but he's able to watch even just like bull riding, you know, just kind of reruns of bull riding shows. 
What else does he have? He has lots of flashlights. Batteries are everywhere. You could tell that he buys a lot of batteries to power his flashlights. Elsewhere, Wahela's seen families run extension cords between houses, charge electronics in cars, and even drive to see relatives just so they can use their outlets. So that, that's kind of what we've seen. And families can pay anywhere from, I don't know, we've calculated about $150 to sometimes $700 a month just on fuels, um, depending on what season it is. And usually in the winter, it's more. What's odd about all this is that the Navajo Nation isn't exactly an energy poor place. In fact, until recently, the reservation was home to two of the largest coal strip mines in the world. In recent decades, as many as five coal-burning power plants surrounded Navajo lands. For many Navajo, power lines connecting coal to major cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles have come to symbolize this vastly unequal landscape. To better understand the history that brought us here, I called Andrew Curley, a Navajo geographer at the University of Arizona, and, well, a homie. We're interested in asking you about ancient astronaut theory, as we understand your people were contacted by aliens. Oh, this is a History Channel program. (laughs) Okay, now I know what this podcast is about. Andrew says that if you want to understand the energy politics of the Navajo Nation, you have to understand the post-World War II boom in cities like Phoenix and states like Arizona when aliens came to the Southwest. You know, like the foreign kind, not E.T. So the coal industry, and especially like this large-scale coal industry, enters the Navajo Nation at a time of really profound transition. So you have the first boarding school generation coming to adulthood. You have many Navajo men returning back from military services, either at World War II or Korea. You have um, transition of Arizona around the Navajo Nation from just a very sparsely populated Western cattle state. And then it suddenly became part of this boom, this post-war boom, uh, in the, what's called the Sun Belt. Almost overnight, Arizona's economy transformed from small and quiet, cowboys, ranchers, miners, that sort of a thing, to a boomtown of defense contractors, semiconductor manufacturers, and suburbanites. So you start to see the need for water increase, and you start to see the need for energy and electricity increase. And that's why they were looking up in the Navajo Nation for sources of energy. At the same time, the United States government was pushing a formal policy of Indian assimilation, relocation, and termination. That was the official slogan, termination. I think it was from 1955 to 1962, um, the, the federal government sponsored a relocation program. And this was like one of the worst, I think, legacies of, it's probably, one of the least known, but like most obvious forms of cultural genocide that you have with with what the federal government was was attempting to do. And this was to relocate indigenous families from the reservation communities into cities to try to to assimilate them into um, into wage labor work. And so that relocation program was happening 
uh, just before all these coal leases were signed. You remember that hole I mentioned in the piece of fry bread, otherwise known as the Hopi Reservation? This is where that hole becomes really important. You see, in 1974, Congress passed a law called the Navajo Hopi Land Settlement Act, designed to clarify the boundaries between the two tribes. Not that that was really a problem. Navajo and Hopi had lived side by side and traded for generations. But as Andrew, Wahela, and just about every other researcher in Navajo I've asked will tell you, that mass of Indians was starting to get in the way. Funny how us Indians tend to do that. Peabody Coal, a corporation interested in the fossil fuels underneath Navajo and Hopi lands, needed Congress to clarify the boundary lines between the reservations so that they could more easily identify which tribe they needed to do business with. The partition ultimately displaced some 10 to 15,000 Navajo families. Their land, their livelihoods, their homes, gone. Many families and people I heard passed away from heartbreak, elders, because they missed their homeland so much and they couldn't return back to that. Uh, Many families or people, they resorted to alcoholism, substance abuse, Even just to access their homelands, relocated Navajo were told they needed to get permits. Some, like Wahela's grandmother, resisted. I actually witnessed grandmothers being arrested for defending themselves to have a ceremony on their own land. And the police coming in and telling them, you don't have a permit to do your ceremony here. You need to go and file a a paperwork at the government office to say that you're going to have a ceremony here. And the grandmothers were like, no, this is where we grew up. (laughs) This is where we're going to be. My umbilical cord is here and I am not going. And this is when I think I was like 11 and I didn't understand any of the things that were like the laws. And and, until I started to read um, more about the dispute and understand that All of this was because of coal. It was because of money. What Congress and Peabody didn't anticipate was the fighting spirit of the Navajo at Black Mesa. The story of Black Mesa resistance is resisting colonialism in its different iterations over time. And so many people who moved into that region, into Black Mesa, actually never were taken by Kit Carson or the U.S. Army to Bosque Redondo, to to Fort Sumner. Curley's referring to the four-year exodus known as the Long Walk, when the United States military led the Navajo on a forced march out of their homeland in 1864. So they claimed they'd never been conquered, right? They never actually were a party to the Treaty of 1868. And so they're saying Black Mesa creates its own kind of regional identity as, a, as already as a defiance against the way that the Navajo Nation was constructed going back to the 1860s within the U.S. Um, colonial system. And a lot of those lands, that's where the two coal mines that eventually opened were located, was right in the heart of the Black Mesa region. In the 1970s, at the height of the American Indian movement, the grandmothers at Black Mesa invited some of the movement's spiritual leaders down to Arizona to support their resistance. In the early 70s, that's when some of the grandmothers, when the wounded knee happened up in South Dakota, grandmothers went up there and asked their spiritual leaders 
we need support down here. We have a fight going on here in, in Black Mesa area. Can you help us bring your ceremony? We need prayers. Wahala was just a kid when a lot of this was going down, but she remembers a gathering that took place at Big Mountain on partitioned Navajo lands. Hopi and Navajo elders were there together, breaking bread. Wow, like, that's significant. You know, you hear about Navajo and Hopi land dispute and conflict, but here you have the most traditional people from Navajo and Hopi, you know, coming together and eating together and laughing and supporting each other. And I remember Thomas Benyankai saying, you young people, all of you, help the elders here. Resist. Stay here. Learn as much as you can about defending this land. You guys are protectors. But I'll never forget that. The story of Peabody Cole is as damning a tale as any told about the crooked dealings of the colonists who swindled this continent away from its first peoples. You see this type of story internationally everywhere, like in indigenous people. Other indigenous territories have the same story where big corporations come in and are able to get access and rights to water, coal, and remove people. And I think that's a horrible business plan. I think it's a horrible way to go about development and energy extraction. And that's our story in Black Mesa and that it fed these huge cities to grow, you know, to thrive from this resource at the expense of human rights, at the expense of our, our health and our well-being. And I think that's the, that has what is like shaped my understanding of energy development in the United States and like how corrupt it is and how it favors other communities than ours and our people. Oh, and a few decades later, it was revealed that the Hopi tribe's lawyer, Mormon guy named John Boyden, he was also working for Peabody. You know, the fact that he um, worked for Peabody and the tribe didn't know that and, you know, was able to leverage this corporation to have access to subsurface mineral rights is crazy. Quote, nothing on record indicates that John Boyden ever provided the Hopi Tribal Council with any substantial analysis of the Peabody lease. That's from Colorado University Boulder law professor Charles Wilkinson in a 1996 paper. It continues. There is no indication that Boyden explained the magnitude of the operation and its probable impacts. That, for example, the two mines on Black Mesa would constitute the largest coal strip mining complex in the country. This is the deceit, you know, that we don't hear about too much. And that in order to get access to lands and mineral rights, it's stepping over and on indigenous rights and people who have been there living on this caretaking of this land for so long. Um, And it's criminal. After a quick break, more of A Matter of Degrees here on Out. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish. Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Side in. Welcome back. You're listening to Outside In. And today, we're featuring an episode of a new climate podcast called A Matter of Degrees. It's about the history and future of coal mining in the Navajo Nation. It's really just, Julian sounds like, the height of of injustice and these kind of back alley dealings that are greasing the skids to make it all possible. There's a tendency, I think, to imagine these kinds of self-dealing, underhanded dealing things as exceptional, you know, as, you know, those are the unusual cases. But I think when you look at things, you know, spanning from the leasing of Manhattan from the Lenape people all the way to this history, you know, I think when you're talking about how powerful people have related to Native people, it, it actually becomes much more of a common thread. Yeah. And I think the other thing that it really brings up is this idea of sacrifice zones that, you know, we can build the largest coal strip mine complex on indigenous territory and, you know, poison communities elsewhere because somehow those areas don't matter, that they can be sacrificed for the fossil fuel economy. I think even this story stretches that concept to, you know, its absurd limits, right? For Boyden, this community wasn't just sacrificial. It, 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 it was also, you know, for the taking. They could be had. Yeah. And what did you learn about the consequences of this taking by Peabody? So despite or perhaps because of Boyden and Peabody, the Navajo Nation transformed into a coal economy, kind of like West Virginia or Wyoming. Kids coming out of high school, looking for work, not having... They could either go to, you know, find a job at the coal mine or maybe join the army and go off to Vietnam. And so, you know, you have these stark choices um, in front of them. And so they end up finding work around where they grew up and where they live. And then over time, they start to identify with that work. And they see that the money that they're doing working in the coal mine is, is helping them to not only take care of their families, but also their, their relatives is fulfilling kinship obligations, bringing in resources needed uh, for the community. And so it's seen as this benefit. And as coal took off, water and pollution became one of the most prominent focal points in the Black Mesa resistance. Black Mesa mine in particular was a the construction of a slurry that took this water, aquifer water, from the end aquifer underneath Black Mesa and it took that water to move coal from 
the mine site to the Mojave Generating Station, 273 miles to the west in Laughlin, Nevada. And so that was used to transport the coal and then it was just wasted. That's all that water was used for. It was just as a cheaper way to transport coal. And so that became one of the first environmental contestations about coal in the Navajo Nation. It's like, how does it treat and use water? This is where Wahela started picking up the work started by her grandmothers. So that that's where I got involved as far as seeing the impact of how much water Peabody Coal Company was using every day and how it had a big impact on the stability of our aquifer. We started to see all of the springs dry up in the peripheral areas of the aquifer, um, subsidence. And these are all indicators that, you know, something's going on with your groundwater and started organizing. And that's how I was introduced into understanding Peabody Coal Company, understanding their history, understanding my history. Andrew, on the other hand, first started looking into this history 12 years ago when he was a researcher at Diné College. Just so you know, Diné, that's the, the word the Navajo call themselves in their own language. And like much else on the reservation, the Diné College was built by coal money. So what happens is over time, you have these institutions to rely upon these industries for a large part of their revenue. So what they end up doing is gaining like, okay, so the last year when I was doing my research in 2013, coal was about 25% of non-federal revenues. So there was 25% of discretionary spending for the Navajo Nation. And then oil and natural gas were another significant part and land leases were another like 24%. So all of these resources and the monies derived from resources in various forms support the Navajo Nation government. And then what does that government do? That government creates jobs for people. You know Max Weber's whole Protestant work ethic thing? Well, Curly, if I can paraphrase a bit, talks about what I might describe as a Navajo work ethic. And then I also talk about the moral economy of coal workers, basically how People who have worked in the industry since the 1970s, um, who had developed a livelihood and a sense of uh, identity around that work, you know, came to support that kind of industry and, and said, you know, this is something that keeps us on the land. They identified it as having a positive benefit for, for not only the Navajo Nation, but also for like communities and culture. There's high unemployment in the reservation. There's little else to do that pays as much. And so, yeah, they understand it's a Faustian bargain at that point. And then, and they're very critical of the whole structure of the coal economy. So there was a, a, a degree of critical analysis among coal workers themselves who knew the industry better than anybody and knew how it was exploiting them, them their bodies and, the health, and their health and also the environment. So there's a range of experiences. And much like in Appalachia, Northumberland, and the Soviet Union, organized coal workers on the Navajo Nation wielded significant power. Take the 2010 Navajo Nation presidential election between Ben Shelley and Linda Lovejoy, for example. A race Lovejoy was expected to win. And she had overwhelmingly won the primary vote, like beating all her opponents by a lot. 
And so people saw that she had support and that she was like really likely to become the next Navajo Nation president. There was even a piece in the New York Times about Lovejoy and her platform to transition the Navajo Nation to clean energy. The headline, Navajo hoped to shift from coal to wind and sun. The coal workers and their union, the United Mine Workers of America, they didn't take it so well. All of them kind of mobilized to, to defeat Linda Lovejoy. So, and, and they did it through a lot of uh, chicanery, you know, saying that like there was this tradition in Navajo stories that say there, when, uh, when a woman becomes leader, then the whole world collapses or so, something along those lines. Lovejoy lost, but the push for a life after coal continued. In 2006, a few years before Lovejoy ran for president, the Black Mesa mine shut down. Ironically, it was the market and not policy or activism that turned the tide. In fact, it didn't die because the Navajo Nation said, no, we're not going to do it anymore. It died because the, the utility companies said, we're not going to buy your coal anymore. For Wahela and her allies, it was a Pyrrhic victory. And so when they closed it, we were excited. We were, it was like a bittersweet thing because we couldn't really celebrate because also it meant 200 Navajo jobs <laughs> were lost. And our, that means our own relatives um, that work there. And it was right around then that a new idea came into Navajo politics, transition. In fact, it goes back to 2006. That's when I think transition enters the vocabulary of Navajo politics. And that was a just transition coalition that was in a set of organizations. It was a coalition, right? You know, with like different organizations coming together to try to push the Navajo Nation to move away from coal into, in their minds, clean energy technology. Solar, I think, was the first thing proposed, and then eventually wind. Since 2006, we've been thinking through and dealing with this question of transition within the Navajo Nation. Andrew recalls a community meeting in 2012 when the Navajo were in the throes of figuring out what that transition would look like. Wahala was there, Peabody Coal was there, community-based groups like the Black Mesa Water Coalition and Black Mesa United were there. So all of those people were there trying to push onto the Navajo Nation Council their agenda. And each of them had like a different story about what they wanted to do with this land. Like Black Mesa Water Coalition wanted to put solar panels on that land as a symbolic reclaiming of that land that was once for dirty energy, will now be dedicated to the production of clean energy. And Black Mesa United, they wanted that land to return back to the people whose uh, grazing permits were on that land, who had some sort of historical connection to those lands. And then Peabody Coal, at that time, their interest was to maintain it as it were. It was still under their control, so they were just like observing what was going on but they may or may not have had an interest in combining the former Black Mesa mine complex with the Kayenta mine and making one super uh, mining area. So each of these actors were out there testifying, you know, we don't want you to put your solar panels here. We want it to come back to us. And then Peabody's like happy, was sitting by happy to watch Diné people fight about it, but uh, they had their own interests at play. And when I was interviewing one of the members of Black Mesa United uh, on the side of the, um, of the chapter house, the Peabody guy was sitting, standing there, and he was kind of trying to encourage that person who I was interviewing with the kinds of answers he wanted 
that person to give. He was like, well, this helped you to keep your, your livelihood, right? This helped you to stay close to home, right? Like, so it was like creating propaganda more than like trying to represent, you know, what people were really thinking and how people were impacted by, by the mining. So just for context, this is before Wahela had started Native Renewables. And here she's found herself and her vision at a bit of a crossroads. She's been fighting Peabody Coal for a long time, but she's not really sure what a vision for post-Peabody Coal looks like. And at first, she looked into utility-scale projects, giant solar farms that have been deployed in other parts of the country. I love the idea of using reclamation lands for utility-scale, but I also learned so much from my own people. It doesn't feel good to use any kind of land (laughs) Uh, for utility scale and like flatten it and like put a solar farm. I don't know. There's something around that that I had, I was challenged with in my own community as well to take a natural, you know, landscape and turn it into a solar farm. Like to me, that that hurt. (laughs) So she started thinking smaller, more domestic. There was a lot of people that came up to me during presentations and they would say, what about residential solar? There's a lot of families that don't have access to electricity and what if we do home solar and I kept hearing that from different people for wherever I went and and I think that's when I started to be like yeah you're right like this is for me it's like it's such a big impact to bring power to you know a family doesn't have access to a transmission line and be able to generate power from the sun. She teamed up with another Navajo woman, Suzanne Singer, and together they formed a new organization called Native Renewables. I bring that kind of social justice, environmental justice, indigenous people's rights perspective to clean energy. Yes, it's dominated majority by white men. And I have um, built my capacity to understand this technology. I've built my capacity to understand understand financing. I have built my capacity to see how this actually fits within our communities. When did you transition from being environmental justice, Navajo resistance activist to, you know, renewable energy nerd? <laughs> I think it's when I became a mother. I, I feel like I had to... Yeah, I I got quiet. I got like, it just like put me in a really gentle space to be able to mother young girls. My activism was intense, you know, because I was saying no to coal was a big deal. It's a political deal internally in my own nation where I was already labeled radical, where I was labeled hurtful things from my own people and my own political leaders that just didn't, see a perspective that I was bringing. And it made me think about like the future, like, okay, what kind of home am I building for my children and my family? And what's the seed, you know, that I'm wanting to plant that Peabody cannot touch, that these political leaders cannot touch, that the federal government cannot touch? Like, what is it that is going to just create that resilience, that hope, about my lineage, my grandmothers that fought hard to resist on this land and for our teachings and our identity. And that's what I like started to really pray about. 
Meanwhile, in 2019, the Kayenta Mine and Navajo Generating Station closed, marking what might be the final chapter in the coal era of the Navajo Nation. Andrew remembers attending a community meeting not long before the end. And it just struck me at that moment, like we were just spending so much time and emotional energy. I think this was a Sunday or a Saturday. It was on the weekend and we were there for hours and we were just dealing with this existential crisis of coal and like whether or not we should continue with it. What kinds of burdens does it have for the environment? What kind of burden does it have for the community? What kind of burden does it have for the coal workers who lose their jobs? What kind of burden does it have for the tribal government who lose their revenues? And so we were stuck with all of these questions. You know, we were just like really pounding our heads against the wall, trying to figure the situation out. And I was thinking like the people who benefited from this the most, which are the communities in Phoenix and Tucson, they were not in these rooms. They were not in these meetings. They were not pulling their hair out trying to figure out the future. They were just living their lives like nothing was happening. People were in Phoenix, probably at a pool, having fun, enjoying the cheap energy coming out of their walls and their sockets. I think for the vast majority of the Southwest and the places that the Navajo Nation's coal powered, this entire history was basically out of sight, out of mind. Nobody knows about Peabody Coal, nobody knows about John Boyden. And now that that era of the Navajo Nation's history is coming to a close, nobody knows about what the Navajo Nation is dealing with, you know, in the wake of these industries. So not only is there, of course, the harm of the coal extraction and the coal burning, but then when those industries start to shut down, you know, there's no plan for how to support the community with the transition. And what does that look like now, Julian? I mean, what is what is the path forward? I don't know. You know, I think that um, there's an immense resilience of imagination on the Navajo Nation. You know, I think that it took incredible resolve and creativity to imagine doing something like transforming Peabody Coal's land into a, a solar farm. You know, I mean, I, I can't think of many more images of climate justice than that. You know, but at the same time, the immensity and, and resilience of the human imagination in a place like the Navajo Nation very quickly comes up against the limits of, of capitalism, you know, about against the limits of infrastructure and, and the limits of, you know, investors' generosity and, and things like that. And so I think that those, you know, the hard realities of economics and the immense ability of people to have hope for their future, I think those are sort of the boundaries of the Navajo people's future. Andrew's pessimistic about the prospects for the Navajo and a clean energy future. I think it's really hard to accomplish as it is now because the, the whole government apparatus is built around the extractive industry experience, right? It's built around large companies coming in with a lot of money and resources, building the infrastructure needed for that kind of business to happen within the reservation. And that's something that you're immediately finding with alternative energies is they're not like these huge companies like Peabody coming in saying, we're going to build this huge scale um, solar field that we're going to then sell to um, 
to Phoenix and Tucson, it's like smaller, medium-sized companies, even really, really small like startups that the Native people are trying to um, initiate that are putting forward that effort. And they just don't have, like they're working within a capitalist economy, but don't have capital. And so that makes it like even more like difficult and, and, and harder to, uh, to accomplish, accomplish your transition goals. So as it turns out, like the only successful solar installation that's happened at a scale, that was something that, that only recently came online within the last few years. And, uh, but you know, of course, it's it's nice. It's like there. It's on the side of the road, and you can see it. But you know, the the difference, of course, is that it doesn't employ nearly as many people. Whereas, like a coal mine could employ 400 to 500 workers. On the Navajo Nation, there have never been easy answers. But against the odds, Wahala has pressed on. She told me about one family she was proud to support. On their homestead, their first question was, "Will this be able to power more than two hours of TV?" And we said yes, and they were excited because they said the generator doesn't last that long to power, to actually watch a full movie, that it usually gets through a half of a movie. He's probably like seven or eight years old. For that to be his first question was like, can I watch a full length of a movie? That might not sound like much, but on this reservation, it could be the beginning of something green, maybe even new. And so that's like how I see and envision my work and um, want it to be an example for my children and their children that you can do this, you can create, and we can lean on our traditional values and we can do this together. You know, all of this doesn't have to happen in some closed door meeting. (laughs) Like it can happen here on the ground around this fire and we can make this decision together. And I think those are the teachings that have led us to our resiliency. That's the beauty I would love to see is just going back to these teachings of the sun, to these teachings of where we've come from, because that's what's that it's there for us and it shows us the way. A few months back, as the first wave of coronavirus ebbed, the Navajo Nation Council passed legislation appropriating congressional funding to provide relief from the pandemic. Native Renewables will use some of that money to begin scaling up their work. For me and Native Renewables, we just saw an opening where they started to talk about power lines, you know, funding for power lines. And that's when I said, hey, let's put some money aside for off-grid solar. I should have asked this earlier, but what's the Navajo word for solar panel? Mm, Yeah, good question. I don't know. I don't know the top of my head. We should figure that out. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by Leah Stokes and Catherine Wilkinson. The host and reporter of this episode was Julian Brave Noisecat. The show is produced by Jamie Kaiser, Sidney Bartone, and Stephen Lacey. Sean Marquand made the theme song, and additional music was by Blue Dot Sessions. It's a production of Postscript Audio. 
Outside In is made by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Erica Janik is our executive producer, and Maureen McMurray is the director of Snow Day Self-Care. Please remember, we are in the midst of our December fund drive, and we are looking for 100 supporters to pitch in at any amount to help to pay for the show. And when we get those supporters, we'll do an extra 10 by 10 episode for you of your choosing. Give at our website, outsideinradio.org. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder and Outside In. It's a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.